When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late-night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and Nancy Pelosi resigned from her leadership position. We have a thrilling show today. Politico's Rachel Bade stops by to talk about the latest fallout from the midterms and the change in Democratic and Republican leadership. Then moms demand actions. Shannon Watts stops by to tell us about the effect gun activists have had on the elections. But first, we have the amazing Mary Trump to talk about the realities of Donald Trump running for president again. Welcome to Fast Politics, my friend, Mary Trump. Molly, I'm so excited to be here. I love the new show and I've been wanting to come on since you started. It's so good. Everybody has to just become a regular listener to this phenomenal podcast. You know, we're a mutual admiration society here. We are. (laughs) Which is true. And you, you know, you write so well, you podcast, you interview, you do everything. So let's talk about our collective PTSD. And I'm not (laughs) even making light of this. I actually think we knew he was going to announce. And yet I found myself just like, oh God, like, I mean, I can only imagine how it is for you. It's interesting that this time around, it's not that he's announcing because that was inevitable. Right. It's that he's been allowed to, that that he continues mm. to be in this position to play the system. People said many of uh, his supporters in, in the immediate aftermath of the midterm debacle for the Republicans that Donald was the biggest loser. It's like, explain to me what way he's he personally is losing here. Right. I can't think of one. As your former co-host Rick Wilson said, everything Donald touches dies, except for him, <laughs> apparently. Will you say more about that? It's just a reminder. And again, there are plenty of people in this country who've always known that there's really no justice. And and, uh, to the extent that there is, the justice system is wildly unfair and biased in terms of white people and especially rich people who are also white. But it's, it's something else entirely to see in real time and so publicly one person, time after time after time, be not just allowed, but enabled to 
commit the most egregious crimes and not only suffer no consequences, but continue to fail up as Donald has been doing since he was a toddler. Yeah, I mean, that is so striking to me. And I'm so glad you're talking about this because it really is just kind of unbelievable. It's not just the usual suspects that you would expect. You know, it's not just the people who judges he appointed, for example. Right. It, It does seem to be the entire system is just inherently incapable of righting wrongs, of getting out of its own way. It was particularly demoralizing. I mean, the whole bullshit about you can't charge anybody before an election, even if he's not running in the election, as if not charging him weren't taking a political uh, position, potentially. But then to hear that the Justice Department is weighing whether or not anybody else who did the same things would be charged. I'm like, you guys haven't made these decisions yet? It's been forever already. There are so many people who have really had their lives ruined by Trump, you know, from the cops who were involved in the January 6th insurrection trying to protect the Capitol to people like Maria Yovanovitch. And it really is interesting that the person who has set all of this emotion continues to just be in Palm Beach. And Molly, you're absolutely right to talk about it in, in terms of PTSD. That That is a very real thing that we haven't addressed enough because part of that is COVID, how COVID exacerbated everything. And then to have the one person who is largely responsible for so much death, for the disruption of so many lives and careers to skate on by, it's a constant reminder You know, you and I have had this conversation many times. You cannot recover from trauma while you're still actively being traumatized. Right. And that seems to be where we we permanently live right now. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I talk to so many journalists and, you know, so many people will say like, oh, you should be so happy. It's going to be great for your numbers or for whatever. And like I'm telling you, everyone I talk to on Wednesday We were all like so depressed. Because it's depressing. And it's, I think people used to say the same thing to stand up comedians. Oh, this is going to be so great for you. Well, if by great, you mean constantly being reminded that the worst people among us are consistently allowed to succeed at the expense of everybody else's mental and physical health. Sure. That's great for me because uh, I might get a couple of good jokes or I got I might get good numbers and it's debilitating yeah. to some degree. And okay, great. Our numbers might be better. We might get more listeners. There might be more interest, whatever, but at what cost? Yeah. I mean, I think that's what it is. So one of the things I want to ask you is like right now we're in a place that, you know, we're trying to figure out how to cover this guy and how to write about him, but not to elevate him and not to help him lie to the American people and not to, you know, we don't want to publicize him, but we have to cover him, right? Because you can't ignore him because we lived through 2015. So you know him and you know the world that created him, more importantly. How do we do this? What do we do? Well, well, that is the distinction. Uh, To the degree that it's possible, not ignore him, but minimize him and keep an eye on the people who created him and are responsible for him, the Mitch McConnells, the uh, Rupert Murdochs, et cetera, et cetera. Because 
they're the ones who are the problem, right? first of all. And they're the ones who are going to decide whether or not they will once again tie their fates to Donald Trump. By the way, they will. Because yeah. <laughs> he's not going to give them a choice. And also, how can they not, right? Because he, they're all fighting for the same 30%. Exactly. They can't because he won't let them. They can't because all they care about is their base. They can't, and this is probably the most important part of it, they want exactly what Donald will give them. Right. And let's be really clear here. If the Republicans had won to the extent that they were supposed to last week in the midterms, we wouldn't be having this conversation because he would be their number one guy. Right. So and they'll come back into the fold because they won't have a choice. And again, that's it's that's their guy. I think the worst thing we could do is allow them to get away with pretending that Donald's the problem. Mm, that's a really interesting point. Can you say a little more about that? Let's say Donald does something bizarre and out of character <laughs> and decides not to seek the spotlight. Right. <laughs> okay, that's not going to happen. But yes. But, like, you know, for the sake of argument that he decides not to run and decides to support whoever, you know, right. is the nominee. That person, whether it's DeSantis or <laughs> Ted Cruz right. or Josh Hawley running again for something, is going to be exactly the same as Donald, just in a more f informed way in terms yeah. of policy. And will just be smarter and less egregious about the way they go about things. I Definitely remember the conversation we had last year about, you know, can Trumpism so-called survive Donald? And the answer is absolutely yes. It has. That's the danger. I just want to continue on for a second, because like in the midterms, the Trumpy candidates, at least in swing states, right? Like Carrie Lake, the people that kept me up at night lost, mm -hmm. right? Carrie Lake, Don Bolduc, right? Mastriano, those people lost. But J.D. Vance won. I mean, Blake Masters lost, but those people who ran on Trumpism, there were some who won, but they only won in very red states. Well, yes, but with the exception of Mastriano, it was close. I mean, Carrie yeah. Lake lost by a very small, less than 1% of the vote. Yeah. So part of that is is uh, tribalism, but part of it is that uh, that message appeals to enough people. Yes, on the one hand, it's a wonderful development that the American people took the threats to democracy seriously and did not put in place election deniers to be secretaries of state, for example. Right. On the other hand, though, we had the same problem we had in 2020. We needed a thorough repudiation of this Republican Party, and we did not get it. Right. Well, and it also feels like Republicans didn't learn any lesson. They didn't say like, wow, we're really turning off these purple state voters or like, wow, we're really turning off women with our crazy anti-choice stance. And instead, they let, they are like, we got to make it harder for people to vote and we have to get women. I mean, I don't know if you saw this Jesse Waters thing where he said, yep. we need to get women married. Yes, I, I didn't realize that that's why I was a Democrat because I'm yeah. single. Uh, but <laughs> what do I know? I'm just a stupid single woman. <laughs> <laughs> so incentive never to get married. Staying single. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so because they don't feel that they need to, they believe if they stay the course and continue to suppress votes and subvert votes, that it won't matter. Uh, they can be the permanent minority power. And we've seen this. Think about all of the headwinds that were facing the Democrats. And still, they almost pulled it out. 
But right. that's only <laughs> because the Republicans were so terrible. But they know that they can just continue to gerrymander, get judges in place to overturn results or what have you. So I think they've decided that instead of evolving and instead of playing to uh, people's better instincts, that they're just going to keep cheating. And it's almost working because enough people either aren't paying enough attention or are perfectly happy going down that road with them. Right. Which is really kind of what I mean, just insane. What do you think now? Here we are in this like post post midterm world. We have, you know, all this time while Trump will announce. I mean, what is Trump's Achilles heel? <laughs> I'm sorry. I know you get asked this a lot, but. No, I actually, I, I don't because there hasn't really been that much reason to talk about him. Right. And now, as you said, we kind of have to because he that's that's what he does. Um, his Achilles heel, well, it's him. I mean, right. he's just so terrible. But the fact, you know, that he continues to get away with all sorts of stuff aside, he really is a loser, right? right he's right, just right. a terrible loser. And uh, it doesn't become a, an Achilles heel, though, until people in a position to do so point that out to him, which, again, is what, like, all the other 7,000 Republicans running in 2016 should have. So it will be interesting to see if anything shifts on that side. I just don't think it would. I don't I don't think, you know, his Achilles heel is going to be relevant because the people in a position to poke it with a sharp stick won't because it won't be to their benefit either. Right. And I think that's the thing. I mean, it's one of these situations where it's like you ignore him at your peril mm -hmm. and yet you also you don't want to elevate him. And so we find ourselves in this weird situation. I do think like the one way you can cover Trump without elevating him is having you <laughs> because you're so <laughs> smart and thoughtful. And also you can and you have this psychological background so you can understand what it is we're doing here. <laughs> Right. I mean, yeah, I, I appreciate that. I, sometimes I wish I didn't have any uh, particular psychological understanding of these things because yeah. it's, it's really not fun looking inside of this. But you're right. We, we ignore him at our peril, no matter what the cost to us. I mean, the thing I always think about with Trump covering him is that we always, or at least I and many of the people I interact with, so this is anecdotal, seem to always like think, well, this will be the moment, right? Like I remember in when he had gotten elected, someone was like, oh, the White House is really small. He's going to hate it. He's going to, he'll, I'm sure he'll resign. Someone else said, you know, and like even when Ivana died, I heard like, Trump has a thing where he's afraid of death. And if Ivana dies, that will somehow make him not want to run. There's no there's never going to be a moment where he decides like he would have to like be removed from running. Like he's going to be one of those people who like who runs for president forever. Right. Because there's no incentive not to. The only way he would step out of this particular fray is if somebody agreed to make him emperor of the world. <laughs> So no, he's unfortunately, he's not going anywhere. <laughs> Terrible thing to say. Also, like, can you imagine him as emperor? Why can't we make him like, I mean, it's just like that. No, let's not do that. That's really bad. Please, please, no.
Please no. <laughs> well, we could just pretend and that, right. let him think that that's actually what's happening. Get him, you know, confused and tell yeah. him that he's really emperor. It's when not he's that not. hard. <laughs> Mary Trump, so interesting and so important. And also just, I'm such a fan. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Molly. It was so good to be here with you. You are the best. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women, like, especially when it comes to black women the way we lean on our mothers our grandmothers our sisters our friends we're just each other's pulse i mean it's molecular you know listen to the bright side from hello sunshine on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts rachel bade is a reporter at politico and author of unchecked Welcome to Fast Politics, Rachel. Thanks for having me on, Molly. What a crazy week. <laughs> I mean, crazy, crazy week. So you are one of the authors of Playbook, but you're famous for covering Congress. I always think of you as like the person who knows exactly what the hell is going down over there. What the hell is going down over there? Oh, my gosh. I mean... First of all, let me just say I am just returning from maternity leave this week and talk about a hell of a time to come back. Nothing like jumping into the fire. I mean, where do we even start? 
it's like, let me just give you an example of what happened Thursday morning and the chaos of Thursday morning. So officially, Republicans took the House on Wednesday night. Big moment for uh, Kevin McCarthy, who's had an otherwise pretty bad week with Republicans <laughs> uh, trying to keep him from getting the gavel. And then right. starting to get calls from a bunch of Democratic sources and Pelosi's leadership team saying, OK, she's going to announce her retirement the next morning. And so I'm trying to pin that down. And then we have Jim Jordan giving a press conference about how they're going to investigate Joe Biden, potentially try to impeach him, et cetera. And Hunter Biden, too. Exactly, of course. And so it's just, it's been quite a crazy week. I can't wait to unpack it all with you. <laughs> so I want to first start with Wednesday night. The House was called 218 to 210, or the Democrats are at 210. Though there still are like 14 seats, but it looks like Republicans will get to they just have to get over 219 and they will have a, a majority but we do we know how many seat majority it'll be we're not sure yet but republicans it seems like you know their expectation went from winning 15 seats to winning 10 seats to winning you know eight more seats in terms of the the, the majority that they will have and now i think we're going to see the expectation from republicans is that they'll have maybe a two or three seat majority which really doesn't leave McCarthy much room to maneuver next year. Uh, and it's going to be really ugly for him with a lot of conservatives trying to control him and lording their votes over his head to try to manipulate him into doing what they want. So it's going to be really tight. So you have the Freedom Caucus, right? And then you have the MAGA Caucus. That's right. Or are those two the same? They're pretty similar. It's interesting because the Freedom Caucus, you know, when Trump first started running in, in 2016, a lot of them were critics of him. They didn't think he was a real conservative. And they had reason to, to think that, right? Trump was a former Democrat. But over right. the years, they have definitely become his top fighters on the Hill. Jim Jordan, Trump, one time I, I, I reported that he was joking to a bunch of Republicans that he was his like top warrior. Jordan's my warrior. And that's sort of what they've become since then. So yeah, they're pretty much the same caucus. They're going to be a problem for McCarthy. And in that caucus is probably the sort of most famous member of the House GOP and one of the largest fundraisers, Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's right. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, it's it's interesting. This week, we saw something happen. This could be a benefit for McCarthy going forward. But a lot of us were watching her to see what she would say about McCarthy trying to get the gavel, trying to be speaker. Would she ever back him for speaker? Because she and him have had a contentious relationship in the past, and he's going to need every vote possible to, to get the gavel. But this week, it was the most crazy thing. She was out there stumping for McCarthy and trying to tell the rest of the Freedom Caucus, these conservatives, that this strategy that they're trying to employ to try to uh, win concessions from McCarthy, it could backfire and that, you know, Democrats might be able to elect their own speaker if Republicans are fracturing. Uh, so sort of an interesting thing there, but she would be a player to watch definitely in the next Congress. I don't want you to have to try to get too much in their head, but why do you think Marjorie Taylor Greene was doing that? Oh, that's actually quite an easy question. Um, you know, we have heard from McCarthy's camp that they have really worked over time over the past year or so to try to make friends with her. Obviously, Democrats kicked her off her committees when she said a bunch of controversial comments um, in the past. And he promised her he'd put her back on a panel that she wanted. She wants to be on House oversight, where there's going to be a lot of investigations of the Biden administration and the president. He has basically told 
told her she's going to get that. He has brought her into his private leadership meetings that he has on a pretty much a weekly basis. Usually that is only reserved for very senior Republicans, but she's part of that now. So he's really brought her into the fold and that has really won her over. That's at least what the, the McCarthy allies have told me this week. And so by sort of bringing her in, you know, he's hoping to sort of minimize potential damage that she could do to him next year. I mean, when you think about all of the things she said, that's pretty wild. What does the rest of the GOP leadership look like, you think? Well, I think the first question is still going to be speaker. I mean, we don't know if McCarthy's going to be able to do it. There are members like Matt Gates, who I'm sure you're very familiar with, <laughs> Trump-loving bomb thrower there. Right. He's saying point blank, I will never vote for McCarthy for speaker. There is nothing McCarthy can give me to make him vote for him for speaker. And Gates told me in the hallway the other day on the Hill that he thinks there are other members who are with him. And it, you have to realize that if there's a two to three seat margin in the House, McCarthy needs that 218. He's not going to be able to lose many. So if he, if he loses Gates, if there are other members like that, who he cannot negotiate with, we could conceivably see the same situation happen as what happened in 2015 when McCarthy tried to become speaker and he couldn't get the votes and had to step aside and Paul Ryan became speaker after that. So I think the top question is still the speakership. And if not Kevin McCarthy, who is it going to be? Otherwise, you know, we're going to see people like Steve Scalise, who obviously has been in leadership for a really long time, Elise Stefanik. She's sort of this moderate Republican who is also a Trump ally, kind of a weird mix there. We'll see her. And then people like Tom Emmer, who are running the NRCC, he is going to be the number three person in the House, uh, the GOP whip. I want to just get back to this for a second, because like a lot of the reporting I've read has said to the effect of like you, there's no one else but McCarthy. This is this thing they keep saying, this wrestling thing to beat the man. You got to be the man or what? I don't even want to know. It's so stupid. But, <laughs> but you've heard them say it like about McCarthy and you've heard them say about McConnell. Is there another man that could be the man? I mean, whoever tries to step into this position is going to have the same problems that McCarthy has. We sort of explored this in Playbook this week because you're right. McCarthy's best defense for himself is this argument that there's no one else who can do it. I'm the best person who can do it. And if you push me aside, you're going to be in chaos. But we sort of explored and talked to a bunch of Republicans right. on the Hill about who else could it be? Steve Scalise, as I, I just mentioned, has been whipped for a really long time. He's got good relationships across the conference. He's got this sort of inspirational story, surviving a gunshot wound a few years ago. So people really like him. Stefanik, given that she's a moderate and from MAGA, a MAGA ally uh, or a MAGA darling, has this sort of interesting bridge that would allow her to, in theory, bring, be the sort of key negotiator between these two warring factions in the GOP. So, you know, you could see someone like her try to rise. There's a Republican named Jim Banks who is from right. Indiana. You'll hear his name a lot in the coming years. This guy is ambitious and he has been working hard to sort of raise his profile. He just lost uh, his bid to become majority whip, but I don't think we've seen the last of him. So I could see him trying to, to try to become speaker someday if McCarthy couldn't do it. Point being, it's going to be hard for anybody, but you know this whole thing about, oh, there's no one else. Sure, there's right. no Paul Ryan, 
Republican, but there's, I mean, there's more than 200 Republicans in the House. And so to say that there is no one else, I mean, it benefits McCarthy, but maybe there is. In that piece, you actually, you had one last member of Congress that could get it, which is Democratic nightmare fuel for sure, jacketless Jim. (laughs) Jordan, yes, of course. Jim Jordan, he's going to be Biden's worst nightmare. I mean, there's a lot of conservatives who think that The House needs a leader who is sort of in this fighting mode. And that is Jordan. I mean, the guy walks around the Capitol without a jacket and with his uh, (laughs) shirt sleeves rolled up like he's about to throw a punch. I mean, this is just Jordan, right? And so a lot of conservatives want someone like that who's going to be very antagonistic to the administration. The problem there is that Jordan is extremely divisive in the House. I mean, he Mm -hmm. ousted not just one speaker, but two speakers. He's the reason John Boehner is gone. He's the reason why Paul Ryan is gone. And so there's a lot of Republicans who respected those men who don't like Jordan because they think, you know, number one, he's way too conservative. Number two, his tactics are unfair and dirty. And so he would have a really hard time getting the votes to be speaker. But of course, you're going to see him. He's going to be a main character in the next Congress. He will be on TV often and he will be a big pain inside for Biden. Oh, I'm sure. Okay, so talk to me about the Democratic side, because it's so interesting what's happening now. Oh, yeah. Well, we're recording this right before at 12-ish, yes. Nancy Pelosi is going to make an announcement. Yes, yeah, so she's going to be going onto the House floor any minute. The The expectation from most Democrats I talk to is that she is probably going to announce that she is stepping aside and will probably remain in the House because of uh, the margin being so tight. They really need her vote. Right. So a lot of Democrats think she will stick around and say, I'm going to help guide the next generation. But look, this is the perfect exit for Pelosi. I mean, if there was this Republican wave that would have materialized like a lot of people were expecting, she would have been left leaving on this sort of negative note. Instead, Democrats did amazingly on, on Election Day. They've passed a lot of bills in the past two years. And she can leave sort of on this really proud note saying, I really defended the House and I defended a lot of these members. And so a lot of people think that this is going to be the day. I also think it's <laughs> very quintessential Pelosi, and we put this in, pol- in playbook. She's a meticulous planner, and she likes to troll people. And <laughs> <laughs> Republicans flipped the House in the past 24 hours, or flipped the House Wednesday night, and Jordan is doing his big press conference about investigating Biden. Hunter Biden, but yes, continue. Yes, it, but Pelosi's about to swoop in and make the entire day about herself and her historic legacy, and potentially the whole weekend, too. So just kind of another uh, jab at Kevin McCarthy on her way out. Oh, that is so interesting. So I want to ask you another question about this. Pelosi leaves. What does, you know, does Clyburn leave? Where does everybody else go? The expectation is that Hakeem Jeffries, who is a Democrat from New York, that he's going to rise and likely be the next leader of the Democrats. So he'll be, become the minority leader. There is a lot of demands in the caucus to have new blood at the top. Obviously, Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and uh, Jim Clyburn have been the top three leaders for about 15 years. And there's a there's a thirst for new faces, new voices, etc. Clyburn has said that he wants to continue to be in leadership, but it sounds like he'd be okay with this sort of more of a um, figurehead role, like Perhaps they make a new leadership position for him as assistant minority leader. So he's more sort right. of advising Jeffries as opposed to being the one making the decisions. Uh, Catherine Clark, who is this Democrat 
from uh, Massachusetts. Uh, she's really big on women's issues and gun safety measures. She sort of became famous for that. She is going to probably run. Who else do you think besides Catherine and Hakeem? for leadership. Some other people you should you should get to know. Pete Aguilar, he is a Democrat. From Texas, right? No, 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 from California, actually. California, that's right. Yes, and he is currently serving on the January 6th committee, so you'll recognize his face. He has been sort of in this mix with Hakeem Jeffries and Catherine Clark. The three of them have become very close friends over the years, and my understanding is that all year they've sort of been laying the groundwork for all three of them to sort of as they slate together, ascent into leadership. So basically, they're going to be working very closely together. They've done a lot of member dinners together. And so they're sort of seen as this package together. So Aguilar is another one you should know. Joe Nagoose, who is a Democrat from Colorado. Oh, yeah. He's a great on TV. He was an impeachment manager in the second trial, close ally of Jamie Raskin, who is an, uh, obviously a progressive superstar. And he's also been in Pelosi's leadership team for a long time. He is probably going to be well, he is going to be running for caucus chair. So he will be another person you'll start to see if he gets this job. The big question, again, going back to Hoyer, will be is if Hoyer tries to stay in the mix, do people like Jonah Goose get sort of kicked out? Like there's been some talk about that. Like if these these older members try to stick around, you could have, you know, a problem with like Catherine Clark or Aguilar or Jonah Goose. Like there's only so many leadership positions available right now and everybody wants to be in leadership. So we'll see who ends up staying. We'll probably know more. The leadership elections are at the end of November, right after Thanksgiving. But we should get a clear picture in the coming days about Hoyer and what he's going to do. And that'll really solidify the leadership slate that we're likely to see next year. Can we go to the Senate for a minute now? Sure. Absolutely. So there's a lot of drama in the GOP part of the Senate, more, I think, than the than the uh, Democratic side. The Democrats added a seat so far, right? I mean, they picked up one and now there's a runoff in December for Georgia. Talk to me about what's happening, because it feels like there have been Rick Scott fresh off his uh, his disappointing run leading the uh, Senate candidates now wants Mitch McConnell's job. Yeah, uh, the Senate, this this has been really interesting this week. I mean, we basically called it like Festivus, uh, just this sort of finger pointing and bloodletting. <laughs> so McConnell has not been challenged since he became leader more than a decade ago. So it was really rare to see someone like Rick Scott come in and challenge him. And nobody was under the sort of impression that Rick Scott, who is becoming a, a top enemy of Mitch McConnell, to actually win. But they just wanted to sort of, you know, make a point. And what you're seeing is Republicans very much trying to blame each other for their abysmal performance on election night. I mean, Rick Scott was out there saying that they were going to pick up, you know, as many as like three, potentially four seats. We could see, you know, a 53-54 margin for Senate Republicans. That obviously didn't pan out. You can also sort of look back over the past few months. Rick Scott and McConnell, Mitch McConnell, had very different ideas for the best strategy for this election. Rick Scott was totally fine with Trump-endorsed candidates taking the nominations in a lot of these states. He backed people like Herschel Walker very early, where Mitch McConnell, he was trying to get Scott to wade into the primaries to keep MAGA candidates who he didn't believe could be elected out uh, and try to get primary nominations for people he thought could actually be elected. But 
Rick Scott wouldn't listen to McConnell. And because of that, there were a lot of candidates who were very controversial and who ended up losing their elections. And so McConnell blames Rick Scott. Rick Scott blames (laughs) McConnell because Rick Scott wanted McConnell to put out an agenda that Republicans could run on instead of just being anti-Biden. But McConnell didn't want to do that. So there's a lot of finger pointing right now. And, you know, I think this is going to continue for a while. Obviously, McConnell became leader. He was elected pretty easily. But there were 11 Republicans who voted against him. So, I mean, he's got some uh, some work to do with his members, I suppose you could say, going forward. I mean, will there be changeovers in other parts of the leadership, too? It's mostly going to be the same slate. But I think what you're going to see next year is these sort of Trump allies in the Senate, people not just like Rick Scott, but also Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, a lot of these members who are looking at 2024 and thinking they could potentially run for president, they're going to just be really emboldened now uh, to to come out against McConnell and try to make his, his life a living hell. An- another thing that sort of shocked me this week is we saw Lindsey Graham who used to be a top ally of McConnell's, vote against him for leader. There's a lot of angst happening in the Republican Party right now. Uh, a lot of relationships being broken because Republicans don't seem to want to blame Trump. And then some of them do. And they're just really at a crossroads and not sure which way to turn because they disagree on what the cause was for why they did so poorly on Election Day. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you, Molly. Happy to do it. Shannon Watts is the founder of Moms Demand Action. Welcome to Fast Politics, Shannon Watts. Thanks for having me on. What are you working on? Talk to us. Oh, I mean, we are working on celebrating our wins across the board on Election Day. We just sort of put our heads down, rolled up our our red sleeves at Moms Demand Action and did the work. You know, we made over 6 million outreaches to voters across the country. We signed up and showed up to get out the vote. We ran for office ourselves. Over 125 of our own volunteers won elected office. And we just really saw Gun Sense champions win the day. First, let's talk about some of those candidates. And then I want to talk about some of the elections you were involved in. Yeah. So, you know, we had gun sense champions all across the country from Lucy McBath, who was our own Moms Demand Action volunteer. Uh, She just won her third term in Congress. It was a seat held by Republicans for 30 years. Newt Gingrich's old seat. Oh, wow. That's pretty great. She's, I think it's important for those who may have forgotten, she's an incredible candidate and she lost a child to gun violence. Yes, Lucy's son, Jordan Davis, a black 17-year-old, was shot and killed by a white middle-aged man at a gas station in Florida who said his music was too loud. Jesus, yeah. So Lucy McBath is is a pretty fantastic candidate. And that is amazing that that's her third term because that has been a very Republican district. It it was. (laughs) Not anymore. So tell us about some of the other candidates you have. Well, you know, I was in 15 states in the last two weeks, including Oregon and Georgia twice. Thrilled to see Governor-elect Tina Kotek uh, win her election. She was the only gun sense candidate in that race. Um, She was up against two NRA allies and uh, was not necessarily predicted to win, and she did. And we saw that play out over and over again all across the country. Um, We flipped legislatures in Minnesota and Michigan. We flipped the House in Pennsylvania. 
even Republican senators who voted for the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act this summer, the two senators were reelected. So look, gun safety used to be considered a third rail of American politics. Now, not only are candidates running on it, they're winning. They used to run away from it. And it's a completely different story now. When I started doing this work 10 years ago, a quarter of all Democrats in Congress had an A rating from the NRA. Today, none do. And it's just a complete and utter seismic shift in American politics. That is very cool. So tell me where you're sort of what states you see the most change and you're the most optimistic about. Well, look, since doing this work, I, you know, there's obviously so many political waves in a decade. But I think they're really interesting places to look at. Virginia, when I started this work, it was a solidly red state. Our volunteers there worked so hard and flipped both chambers of the General Assembly in 2019. Obviously, they've elected a Republican governor, but that governor is a lifetime NRA member who refuses to say where he stands on guns. He hasn't rolled back the progress we've made. I'm confident we will elect a a Democratic governor in the next term. Colorado used to be considered purple. I would say it is now solidly blue. And a volunteer from Moms to Man Action, his name is Tom Sullivan. His son was shot and killed in the Aurora movie theater shooting in 2012. He was a state rep. He was just elected state senator. And we have a very solid majority in that state now. I never would have thought that we would flip Minnesota this year, let alone Michigan. And we can now go into those states and pass good gun laws, Arizona, possibly Pennsylvania. So it is really a different playing field than it was a decade ago. Yeah, that is amazing. Can you explain what you think has changed to make it a third rail? Oh, I I know what's changed it. And that is a grassroots army that can go toe to toe with a gun lobby, a bunch of angry moms in red shirts who have a presence in every single state in this country. We show up and sit, you know, 10 hours at a time in hearings to show our lawmakers we're watching. We've passed hundreds of good gun laws. We've stopped 90% of the NRA's agenda every year for the last seven years in state houses across the country. We have passed policies through city councils and through school boards. In fact, 8 million families have now received our secure storage notifications through their students, telling them to keep their guns locked, unloaded, and separate from ammunition. And then we're electing our own volunteers and gun violence survivors to office, right? That is a a significant way to move the needle on this issue. And when you look at polling, this was a top three issue for voters this election cycle. We were able to explain that voters who are concerned about crime (laughs) should understand that you can't be tough on crime if you're soft on guns. And that resonated. You know, at the end of the day, this is what the American people want. And Republicans are, are learning that lesson the hard way. And it, it's going to take several election cycles. Talk to me about like your legislative dreams now. Now you've gotten some of these people in office. Democrats don't control the House, but it's going to be very tight. I mean, what is on your agenda? So at a federal level, we are still trying to pass things that are foundational to a gun safety system in this country. So for example, a background check on every gun sale. Right now, federal law only requires them on licensed sales, not unlicensed. And so that is a gaping loophole that needs to be closed at a federal level. 
Um, we do, as I mentioned, uh, now have the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act that passed over the summer. It will save thousands and thousands of lives, and it addresses gun violence holistically. And that had 15 Republicans sign on. I think that's a really good sign that we're slowly but surely getting all politicians, regardless of political party, on the right side of the issue. So we're going to keep pushing there. There are other things that can happen, like an assault weapons ban or a red flag law. There's lots that can be done at a federal level. At the state level, you know, we've gone state by state to pass background checks, to pass red flag laws, to close loopholes in the background check system, to disarm domestic abusers, to require secure storage. Those are things that we can do in these states now that have a gun sense majority. Uh, that we were just talking about. We also still have to show up and stop the NRA's agenda in those states where we're playing defense. And that really comes with strength in numbers. But there's so much innovation going on. You know, in Rhode Island, we just rolled back open carry for recreational purposes. You can't just carry your AR-15 around in the city for fun. In Colorado, we rolled back preemption which is a law that prevents uh, cities and municipalities from passing policies that are different from state law. So that is a huge shift. We can do that in, in some of the 40 other states that have a preemption law. And in California, we just passed a state law requiring secure storage notifications to be sent home to, with every school kid. So there's so much that we can be doing in those states where we have a gun sense majority that then we can extrapolate those best practices to the rest of the country. Right. Many Democrats can be sort of squishy on things like choice, like if you think about Henry Collier. It seems to me like on gun safety, that is not true. That Democrats have really, you know, supporting that what is the sort of right thing on that. Yeah. I mean, as I mentioned, a quarter of all Democrats in Congress had an A rating from the NRA a decade ago. Today, none do. Right. We're having more and more Republicans sign on to federal legislation, more than we've ever had before. These horrific shooting tragedies are certainly keeping a spotlight on the issue. We have activists of all ages making sure that their lawmakers pay attention to this issue. There's really no other issue that has an army of angry women that wake up every day, <laughs> right? right? And hold well, their abortion. lawmakers accountable. Yeah, but 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 even abortion, I think, could benefit from a mom's demand action right. type organization. They don't have people showing up in city councils and state houses all the time who identify themselves as single issue voters. Now, we certainly saw that wave of voters this election cycle and you know, I'm really frustrated by people who keep pointing to the youth vote because really it's the female vote. It was young women right. who got Democrats over the line. And I hope they organize less organically and it looks more like a mom's demand action on the issue of abortion. But I do think having organized this indomitable group of millions, you know, we have 10 million supporters, we're twice as large as the NRA. It's a good model for taking on any special interest. And certainly, there will be people holding not just Democrats accountable, but Republicans accountable if they don't do the right thing on the issue of gun safety. Yeah, that's a really interesting point for Democrats. I mean, we talk a lot about Democrats organizing and being able to push things that are very popular like this. You know, most people don't want their kids to have the chance of, I mean, school shootings are not popular and choice is very popular. You know, we had so many, even this weekend, we had two school shootings. I mean, do you think there's a place where there you could maybe get some sort of broader legislation passed now that there's been so many or it just is not relevant? I do believe every time there's a horrific shooting tragedy that makes the news, it galvanizes people, it gets them off the sidelines. 
Our organization exploded in growth after the Parkland shooting tragedy and again this summer after Buffalo and Uvalde and Highland Park. But sadly, you know, mass shootings and school shootings are about 1% of the gun violence in this country. It's really the daily gun violence, mostly with handguns, that kills 110 people and wounds hundreds more. So we have to look at this issue holistically. Like, I understand that people want to immediately ban assault weapons after a mass shooting, but you also have to unlock community violence intervention program funding. You also have to have background checks on all gun sales. We also have to make sure domestic abusers don't have easy access to guns. Many mass shootings in this country are started by incidences of domestic violence. The bottom line here is that gun safety isn't just good policy anymore. It's now good politics. Right. And I think politicians who stand with us realize they'll be rewarded. Those who stand in the way realize they'll be held accountable. Suburban women and mothers, you know, and and too often that is a dog whistle for white women. That's not the case. The suburbs are incredibly diverse. They're about as diverse as the rest of America. You know, those women and moms are sick and tired of their children not being safe and their communities being torn apart by gun violence. If you spend any time in state houses, what you realize very quickly is that about 80% of our lawmakers are men and they are not rocket scientists. (laughs) (laughs) And so when you've learned how to be an advocate and shape policy, it's just intuitive that you then want to take the next step into making policy and seeing these volunteers turn into lawmakers. I mean, We elected 16 of our volunteers in Illinois, seven in Rhode Island. It's been amazing to watch the progress that our program has made. Uh, One of our volunteers, Nabila Syed, uh, a Muslim Indian American woman in Illinois, she flipped a GOP-held district and is now the youngest member of the Illinois General Assembly. Wow. (laughs) So those stories are are what keep me motivated and, and I think have helped with this groundswell of support for the the issue of gun safety. What do you want from this White House? First of all, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have been incredible champions for gun safety. I, I would argue they've done more than any administration in history on this issue. The Bipartisan Safer Communities Act that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris championed and got signed into law will save thousands and thousands of lives. But frankly, it's a first step on a much longer journey. Joe Biden has also done a lot of good work on this issue through executive action. He could certainly do more. But look, based on these election results, I'm optimistic that there will be more legislation on this issue that that will be life-saving and serve as a template for the rest of the country, but also continue to make this issue, you know, not a left or right issue, but a life or death issue, which it is, and that we will see more and more Republicans acknowledging the fact that this is what their constituents want. Just one last question. I mean, do you think there's some progress with raising the purchase age on some of these guns or on all of them? Or you think that's gone? Look, we first of all, we support an assault weapons ban. But regardless, you should be 21 in those states where it's legal before you can buy one. Several states have passed those policies because of the Trump appointed judges, they're being challenged and because of Bruin. But we know that they're constitutionally sound, these laws that raise the age. And the other thing that the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act does is it puts in place more gating factors for someone under 21 to buy a semi-automatic rifle. And hopefully that will also demonstrate that this is something that states should do. And look, if you look at the data People who are between the ages of 18 and 21, it's about quadruple the number of of homicides committed by the age group. 
We know that people with undeveloped brains should not have easy access to guns. That's pretty intuitive, but the data shows it too. You can't rent a car until you're 25. There's a reason right. for that. <laughs> the it's actuaries have, have demonstrated that needs to be the case. And, and the same can be said for, for gun purchases. So we will continue to work on raising the age to have access to assault weapons. God, that's such a, that's such a good point. Uh, so, you know, there's no car rental lobby, right? <laughs> Exactly. You know, it's just, that's what it is. Thank you so much. This was so great. I really appreciate uh, having you. Thank you. Of course. Thank you for having me on. And now your moment of fuckery. Molly Jung Fast. Jesse Cannon. I got to tell you, this this issue, this one makes me very mad because I feel like there's a lot that administration could do that they're not doing. So sometimes in our moment of fuckery, we talk about stuff that's stupid, but this is not stupid. This is actually deadly serious. It's just very fucked up. Brittany Griner, WNBA star, and, you know, she's really a she was really a celebrity in the WNBA. She is found with two cannabis vape canisters in her luggage. Two, okay. He has been sent to a Russian penal colony, which was, of course, you may know it as the Gulag, so pretty famous. It uses sleep deprivation and hourly checks and the denial of medical treatment to torture prisoners. There are 700 such prisons in Russia, and they are a place where prisoners are forced to work. So this is a real fucked up situation, and it's really so deeply unfair. And I am just, you know, I understand that this, that we are a country that's at war, but I think that the Biden administration should do everything they can to bring Brittany Griner home, and I hope they will. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. 
Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.